This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. So to introduce the two people that are here with me today, um, John O'Shea is a curator, producer and artist working nationally and internationally, exploring emerging technologies and new art forms. He has curated and produced projects in the UK for Fact, Future Everything, Abandoned Normal Devices and the Liverpool Biennale. He's worked in commercial partnerships with companies such as EA Sports. He most recently established the Out of Play Arts Program and Digital Collecting Policy for the National Football Museum in Manchester, culminating in a program called Pitch to Pixel, a major exhibition of football and computer gaming. John is the Senior Exhibition Manager at the National Media Museum in Bradford. Would you please make him welcome? And our other panellist is Kia Winesmith, a digital strategist, producer, writer and creative technologist who is interested in telling engaging stories and solving tough problems using technology. He has produced and collaborated on award-winning artistic and legal projects here in Australia, plus in Europe and the United States. Kia is the head of web plus digital platforms at SF MoMA and the co-founder of the SF MoMA Lab. His role is to be the museum's strategist and project manager for all of their public-facing web and digital platforms, and that includes websites, mobile sites, apps, and intergallery inter- and gallery interfaces. Kia holds a PhD in new media and writes and speaks internationally about technology and media in the cultural sector. Would you please make him welcome? Um, Now, mindful that uh, people in the audience will have questions, but I do just want to sort of kick this off by um, maybe talking about this idea. I mean, Werner Herzog, um, you know, he approaches this subject of the internet in the film we just saw in the very similar way to how he approaches all of the subjects in in his movies in a, you know, he seeks out curious people, he seeks out experts, but he always approaches them in a very, um, uh, he really, he knows how to bring out the boffin in people. Um, He is, however, a self-confessed Luddite. He doesn't use social media. He doesn't, has a mobile phone. um, And I think he uses the internet for some email and a Google map is what he claims. So given that he is um, essentially a technological tourist and both of you are inherently linked to technology in your professions, I'm just keen to get your sort of initial sense of of his approach to a topic as big as the internet. Uh, so he has a retrospective playing at SF MoMA at the mm-hmm. moment and he's coming out and like I know from talking to curators who talk to him that he's not as much a Luddite as he says. Uh-huh. <laughs> so kind of the way he presents himself he's is definitely quite, a showman. <laughs> yeah, it's quite yeah. deliberate, which I think is which is kind of really interesting. But he, he it's not only the boffin <laughs> that he brings out, he brings out um, the, the kind of the quiet moments of introspection that I think people who are seasoned, you know, speakers or professional reflectors uh, uh don't often get to mm. so i had a really strong sense that elon musk is actually a bond villain which i think <laughs> it's, it's wonderful that missing, scene <laughs> he's missing the cat i think yeah. maybe stroking the cat yeah but you get, like he's got all of the parts there's the space exploration there's the money side yeah there's the self-driving like 
and you wouldn't ever get that from the normal Elon Musk. It's the Werner Herzog that pulls out that kind of that fear of the future that he's trying to change to make it more like the future he wants. Yeah, I mean the way that he he cuts the film is incredibly deliberate um, and, I mean, I think the scenes with him in particular and, of course, the scenes with the, you know, the charming um, uh, boffin, uh, you know, uh, brain scientist. I mean, he really knows how to um, give those characters and he makes them characters in, in mm. ways. But I guess I'm interested in what um, because he does present a fairly um, at times terrifying vision of the future and I wonder if um it, you know I, I'm just interested to know if that's something that uh you think is just him being playful or is that um well I, I think that um I mean the the Luddite thing I think that um it comes across to me as like quite a healthy sort of skepticism mm. that he's sort of and he's managing mm. to present at least himself as investigating this subject uh you know from lots of different angles but i think the the terrifying bit you know i was thinking as i was watching this about um so our institution in the uk is the national media museum and when it when it started in 1983 it was the national museum of photography film and television and since 1983 in that time period you know which it's not that long you know fundamentally all of those media types have have been transformed uh, and not just transformed i mean um you know in terms of photography that was a relatively specialist thing every person in here now will have a photographic a device for making photographs not just taking photographs but uh, distributing photographs mm. um every person in here will have a device for making films um and in terms of television the sort of um so these were the core components of our institution. And they've, you know, we became the National Media Museum in 2006. Mm -hmm. And I think at that point, it seemed to make sense that these media were, were converging. Mm. You know, you get those pictures of, oh, there's all the devices and they're all coming together. But actually, I think that was, uh, at the time, that was fair enough, but it, a mistake, actually, because mm. as is sort of said in the in the film, the, the internet is sort of exploding hmm. so many of the things that we hold as having um, any sort of solidity or graspability um, that that is quite terrifying. Hmm. I, I think what's interesting to me um, is to reflect, like it's easy to reflect on how fast things are moving and mm -hmm. I live and work in Silicon Valley and so I'm kind of adjacent to that speed. But it's interesting to think, like he's shot a lot of the interviews in late 2014 through 2015 and a few early 2016 and the, the film came out kind of mid-2016. Mm. And it's interesting to think of what has happened since mid-2016 to now that you would put, if you if you shot the film today, you, you would add more things. So maybe, um, you know, for the benefit, I mean, what sort of things do you think? I mean, you'd have to, like Trump would have to be present somehow. Um, and the cyber. Yeah. Yeah, this I description of this the cyber hack, yeah. Well, no, just this Trump used this phrase, didn't he? You know, yeah. the, the cyber yeah. to describe just the cyber, the general, <laughs> and it's probably quite a good yeah. handle on it. You know, yeah. it's probably of all the sort of little aphorisms and things mm. like that. That there's this thing that we don't really have a grasp on. Mm. You know, actually, he's not a million miles off there. You know, I think the the the, the 
the biggest so it's a friend of mine that the hack that they were referring to which is of the chinese government trying to hack google to get in and take emails a friend of mine worked for google at the time and was uh-huh. part of the response team when they discovered that it was happening and started to try and protect their systems and sort of he reflected on how stressful and like frightening and awful it was and how it kind of consumed him and he ended up leaving google after that it was wow such an intense experience of feeling like that his he and his team's role was to protect you know like a chunk of the internet from the chinese government and what's like weird to reflect on is that at the same time the us government was just sitting and doing a man in the middle attack and just siphoning up everything so the chinese were making a very explicit attack like trying to break down the door is what they were doing trying to break down everyone's door like everyone who has a gmail address they're trying to break down your door and what the us government was saying is we won't bother doing that because we own the roads you drive on and so we're just going to look in your car as you drive past. We yeah. don't need to break down your door. Yeah. And that was happening at the same time but in very different ways. And so if you think of the kind of frightening nature of the internet now, I think the the one one that I would use as a better example of of a like a massive hack was the experiment that someone ran or some group of people ran um a couple of months ago to see if they could knock over DNS. So Sorry, um Does everyone know what DNS no, is? No, I was just okay. about to ask what is DNS. So when you type in someone's email address, the bit after the at, um, it'll look up the system that's passing the email from place to place. And email is a best effort technology. So it'll try and go up this street. And if that street block, it'll try and go up an adjacent street until it can find a way to get where it needs to go. And up all of those streets are, are things that say, here's where you go next. And those things have all decided, all agreed that everything after the at those those letters means this machine in this place it means this address so we say john but what john means is like a physical address of a computer in a place and the dns servers scattered around the world all agree that like in my case sfmama.org is this particular computer so if someone tries to go to the website to book a ticket or whatever this is this computer you go to and so what they did is they got a couple of million um internet connected devices and so not servers not computers not smartphones they got um you know baby monitors i have a i have a kid i have a baby monitor it's a really old one it's a radio frequency one it isn't connected to the internet but there's new ones with like cameras and you can connect to it from far away you can monitor your children remotely so they're all on the internet you know keeping the internet and the world web as separate things they're on a different internet and so someone just put malware on a couple of million of those and use them to knock over one of the building blocks of of the internet which is like how you get from a to b and they didn't do it for a reason as far as anyone can tell my guess is they did it to see if they could do it yeah and they can do it if they could keep doing it we would have no internet or well, we'd have no world wide web because there's a lot of things that don't use those traditional routes and that's I would say that's kind of frightening. These are the sort of fragility of scale, aren't they? Mm. You know, when something becomes of a certain order, Mm. you know, actually a very small action within that complex system can Mm. cause an ecosystem, effectively something akin to an ecosystem failure. Yeah, exactly. The The two things that I get scared about in terms of the internet is sort of malicious action, like someone or some group of people setting out to break bits of the internet mm. to help them in some other world, some other reason. And then the kind of, the sort of Trumpian, the crazy idea that you would put someone who's against net neutrality in charge of the FCC. 
is is really frightening as well because so much of the internet infrastructure actually runs through the US. And if you chose to just decide that it's a free market and if Comcast wants to pay, they get the fast route. And if you're not on Comcast, you get the slow route. That's another way to break the internet. Yeah, and I think there's a, um, you know, possibly what uh, revelations like what Edward Snowden was talking about in terms of our information being sucked up. And I think that there's also, um, you know, we're at a point, they talk a little bit about this in the film, that we're sort of at a point in history where there will be lots of moral questions that we will need to ask. And so, of course, we there is so many attractive lures on the internet and things we want to share information, we want to share pictures, um, and we're happy to give away our privacy. But then that, of course, you know, there's a lot of information that we are not sure yet what the final consequence of that's going to be. So mm. I feel like we're at quite an interesting point in history where um, we, we're not sure what exactly we want. It's yet. it's not just a sort of, I mean, this is again to go back to the metaphor of our museum. So the t- 20th century idea of media was this sort of progression where, mm. all right, they're the things from before and this is what's going to come next and all right, we're all excited about it. Um, so you mentioned two things there that sort of scary, you know, the uh, malicious action or the sort of um, somewhat acting against the internet. But the thing that sort of both scares and I suppose enchants me really with with what's going on at the moment, it's wider than the internet is. Um, so we mentioned before this football and computer gaming exhibition mm. that, that, that I worked on previously and football and sport in general, I find very intriguing in relation to technology. Mm. Uh, there's a, Current tipping point happened a couple of years ago with um, there's a, a a computer game which is called Football Manager and for people who aren't familiar with it, um, basically you open up your laptop and instead of playing as a as a footballer on a football pitch, you play as the manager. So you organize what the players should be paid and you decide. I can see some people glazing over already. <laughs> this sounds like the most boring thing imaginable. And I, I don't really, I don't play it, but people lose their lives into this game. You know, people spend years of their lives inside this game. It's, it's been cited in divorce cases, you know, um, oh, wow. people become obsessed with this game. But anyway, the community that play this game have been playing it for decades now. And the database behind Football mm. Manager, which is owned by a company called Sports Interactive, which are owned by Sega, um, the database, the artificial intelligence inside this computer game has become so incredibly sophisticated that the actual professional football managers in the Premier League in, in the UK, they go on to Football Manager to find out information about players that they might want to sign so the database of the football computer game has become richer hmm. than the world. any o- other existing real, if we want to call it that, real world database. And that distinction between the real hmm. and the digital space, I, I find increasingly doesn't really make sense. Hmm. And I think that there isn't a sort of scariness in that. There's a sort of weirdness that we've not happened hmm. across before. Yeah. You know, you could call it a sort of life imitating art type situation. Hmm. And so it's that threshold that we're at that I think was only really alluded to a little bit in the in the mm. film. Yeah. Uh, there was actually a slight, in the film, so I'll use my boffin hat, you know, the football robots, it was sort of simplified a bit in the film. So the actual goal of the RoboCop is that these should be humanoid robots. 
So the ones there were like little buggies, but actually mm. the, the explicitly stated goal is that there will be human robots which will compete in 2050 against whether it's the Brazilian football team or or it might be the Australian by yeah. then, yeah. Um, so, uh, but you would, I don't know the progression of things. You would, hmm. would you bet against it? I, you know, hmm. I, I would say that could happen. I, I think of like pacemakers as an example of like this blurring of lines. Mm. People are starting to put their pacemakers online so they can upload data so that doctors can see remotely what your heart is doing over time. I'm like a friend of mine works for Fitbit. Um, and so he gave me a bunch of different Fitbit stuff to try some stuff that hadn't put out yet. And the Fitbit database of what people eat, you know, how much they sleep when they sleep, how much they walk when they walk. That's also, they've got pretty good dem demographics around that. So mm -hmm. like difference between men and women, different parts of the country, different parts of the world, the Fitbit database is a blending of sort of digital ephemera nodes and like real world humans with real world names, you know, usually attached to email addresses, which is you know the easiest way to give away your identity. So there's so many uh, examples of where our kind of, where we've made this Faustian bargain with technology, we've made this value proposition. Mm -hmm. I will swap you my privacy and data for the thing that you have that I want. And I think that's, one of the like key contemporary questions around the internet and it was largely absent from from the film yeah and also too i think the um uh that idea of um humanity and technology and in the film it's presented slightly i mean at different points they're presented as very polar opposite things mm. but um you know, I think our everyday relationship to technology and how attached we are to it and how, um, you know, we are incredibly adaptable to it. You know, these concepts are quite big, but we even for average people, we have adapted to it quite quickly and it's very much become part of our humanity. Mm. So I don't know, do you want to speak? To well, just some of it happens quite quickly, but yeah, I think there is a sort of naivety in the film uh, in um, quite deliberately, you know, I think to sort of, posit these two things against each other but mm. but the film finished with the sort of the acoustic instruments and the people mm. you know away from the signals you know and they sat around the the fire the campfire mm. and in uh in england at cambridge university there's a guy called martin turner who's a um sorry martin jones who's a, a an archaeologist um and he talks about um 30,000 years ago this period when humans began first um to sit around and to cook uh food using using fires and so they would cook meat or they would sort of and when we cook food using fire that's a technology and what mm. it allows us to do is effectively we digest some of that food outside of our body it's easier to break down and he locates that historically 30 to 50,000 years ago with an expansion in the social capacity of human beings because we're no longer required to digest uh, food with our gut mm. more energy is available for our our minds to to expand and to to um to to use within culture and so you're talking a, th a 30 to 50,000 progression but he he situates a sort of origin of culture with this sort of mastery and sharing mm. of fire humans had fire a lot sooner than that but these are the earliest sites where humans shared fire and i think we have to be very very careful about separating 
certain types of tools which are the sort of future technologies and mm. our sort of constant um symbiotic um mm. relationship to our tools and our environment yeah th- like thinking about the cultural sector i guess i mean there's a lot of museum next people here um this idea that digital is a, a is this other thing and isn't isn't pervasive seems mm. to me kind of like antiquated now it's like saying media it's like oh the media happens over there (laughs) which is which is kind of ridiculous and i and i think and 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 definitely in silicon valley we're starting to see you know things like the digital sabbath movement which is what is that so digital sabbath is this idea that you stop using technology from sundown on friday to sundown on saturday Uh so you you have a like it started in berkeley obviously (laughs) Uh, i live in berkeley and so I, i have a version of the digital sabbath which is when i get home from work i leave my smartphone and there's, there's a way you can track how many times you open your smartphone. I'm in the high 200s. Oh. So I open my smartphone in the high 200s every day. Um, so I leave my smartphone by the front door, um, put, take my jacket and bag off. It's a little bit colder than, there than here. And then I promise myself that I won't look at it or look at any technology until my kids are asleep. So I have this little window during the day. Mm-hmm. And the thing that happens to my body, like the literally the moment that my kids are in bed and I've come out and the songs are sung. Uh, like I am so hungry to look at that device again. Yeah. Like it's, I'm aching to look at it. I have to in- intentionally not go and get it straight away if I want to have a proper conversation with my wife. So that's a real craving, isn't it? And mm. what you described there is a real, I mean, you could not really describe that as anything other than a kind of a religious ritual. It's, it's, it's more like being hungry. But the but the sort of way that you described, uh, maybe not religious, but mm. definitely a a sort of uh, a ritual of, you know, off comes the jacket, mm. leave the phone, it's outside the door, you know, it fits with, um, you know, th- th- things like ritualistic ways mm. of, 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 I don't know, performing different uh, parts of your life. Yeah. And, and I, I'm like, I'm curious actually of the audience, if they have, like, do you get phantom vibrations? Do you like get weird like in my head when the guy said society is four square meals away from collapse i wonder how (laughs) how long without your smartphone if we took everyone's smartphone in western world away like would it be four square meals or would it be like an afternoon quite quite possibly an afternoon (laughs) for lots of people um as someone that had to recently try and track down an alarm clock so that i would not use my phone anymore turns out it's very hard to find an alarm clock for one yeah, but it's true. also this strange yeah this intensely um i mean i think you know they say every time you get your email dings you get this little shot of dopamine in your brain mm. and i i think that we um it goes deeper than that even i mean the little yeah. emoji emoticons you know the faces in those emojis trigger the same specific part of the brain that a human expression really uh, stimulates so it, it's it's at a layer beyond <laughs> yeah. just oh, wow. um cravings and it's know? also it's also partial reinforcement so my uh wife works in digital education works in uh, works in schools and she teaches she teaches digital literacy and digital citizenship and what she's teaching young people now is school and this has only started in the last couple of years schools are starting to employ people to help their students become literate with technology before it can take over their lives in a kind of way. And so she talks to them 
um, and uses this analogy, which, which is not hers invented, but this analogy she used with the students, is that the same way that playing a slot machine or playing like gambling is you've got um, kind of inconsistent partial reinforcement. So if you got every, if every tweet that you read or every email you got was amazing, was just the best, it was just the best news, you just kept on winning the lottery over and over and over, like you kept on getting offered that new job or your parents sent you this beautiful photo of this thing they bought you, whatever. If that's what happened every time, you would actually get bored of your phone. But because some of the time in a way that you can't yourself understand or choose or, 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 or predict. arrange or predict, yeah. some of the time it's a bit of magic, like Trump trips over and lands on his face. <laughs> Love the internet. And then then the rest of the time it's not. It's like this yeah. mixture of banal. But every now and then there's this little hit. The way that our brains are, like the way that neuroplasticity is, we're basically training our brains to want to look at that phone enough that we get the payoffs and it's exactly the same as gambling makes makes perfect sense yeah should we see if there's any yeah, questions like here know, or, um, yeah, or I thoughts think we, we have i guess a microphone down here sorry if you can just if you if you can shout do but otherwise just to bring it back i guess to the cultural uh, institutions that might be here if well i guess it is um assuming the internet is pervasive and it's not going away and how does it I guess how do you adapt um, in a in a space? I guess a permanent fixed space like a museum to something that's evolving so quickly and changing so quickly, and perhaps um, I guess difficulties with technology that are involved with that. The time, you know, the amount of I guess energy and money that you need to maintain exhibits and and update them, and obviously have a lot more failures than you might have with um, static, non-technological exhibits. How do you sort of factor that into um, the modern modern experience, where perhaps people are demanding all this technology, and also uh, perhaps there's problems and it becomes more and more difficult and expensive to maintain. How do you keep up with? that in the long term you can't keep up you can't um it's a profound challenge for the way that we conceive of museums uh mm. from the previous century you know uh if you're a conservator who's charged with maintaining the the sistine chapel then over a period of time the colors will fade and you can build a, a management protocol in relation to that but in terms of in-house um maintaining and conserving so much of what's happening right now, you, I, I don't believe you can do that. I mean, I think one of the things you can do as a cultural institution, we had an exhibit back in the, the, the 90s when I first visited our museum when I was a child. And um, uh, we had an exhibit which was, um, it was a magic carpet, basically. People think it's very twee now, this exhibit, but um, it doesn't exist now. But it was basically a green screen space and you could go into it and you could read the news and you'd or they'd do the weather and you'd have the weather behind you or you could go into it and you could sit on the magic carpet and because of the green screen technology you would be flying through space um and i think an exhibit like that does something at that time in the 1980s you know when the superman films i mean films now are still made with those techniques to create an exhibit which can enchant people but can also 
reveal the sort of inner workings of these um, systems, I think is one of the th- the very quite powerful things that cultural institutions can do, mm. which is more than educational. Um, it's about uh, revealing something about the, the the workings of these systems, and then our visitors. You know, some some institutions here will get you know hundreds of thousands of visitors a year are then better informed and understand uh, what's happening to their culture better through what how we present this uh in terms of I, i've and I, sorry i wasn't saying that flippantly that we can't do this I, i've worked on a number of projects where we've tried and, and that's not to say some of these won't work but i worked on a project with uh rhizome who are based in new york to try to um archive a whole bunch of um vine you know little short videos on on vine um again this was related to football there was a culture of football fans filming their television sets mm. and making their own little sort of remixed videos of um of football matches so as the national football museum we thought oh it'd be great to have some of those in our collection and we built this system very 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 quickly and just as it was about to go live so we had examples in the system uh vine and twitter and uh, Sky, who are the main broadcaster, collaborated to design an algorithm which went on to the, the internet and harvested these vines, which were in a, a, a sort of clash with their copyright um, holding. Um, and so these all got taken away. So these things are there very fleetingly. Mm. That's my feeling on it. Mm. So um, the like, it's a really important and interesting question. And we have... Um, at my museum, we have a big media art holding, which which is really hard to keep alive. And we also have a strong um, history of collecting California-made design objects. And so the last 15, 20 years of California-made design objects are, are very technologically rich. Um, and we got a grant to work with local, you know, California designers, digital designers to, to work out ways that like to spend five years trying to work out how to actually collect modern design designed digital interfaces um and we started with the iphone one so we we bought the iphone one and we did the very museum-y thing as in we didn't touch it unless it was with gloves we left the little screen on you know we like did everything the museum does when it when it kind of acquires an object you know we interviewed the maker and we got the sketches and we went down to apple and we met everyone so we, we got the object plus we got these sort of really key like bits of ephemera, like the first icons and how they were sketched on the sketch pad, and every, like on a, somebody's notebook. And so we did all of that right. And then, um, you know, 10 years later, we, we had this show called um, Typeface to Interface, which is like a, a design history of typography to the present. And we wanted to show a video of the iPhone 1 because it was is part of that kind of history and it's kind of an important part of that history. It's a Californian part of that history. And we couldn't turn it on. We have someone on the board who works for Apple we went and met the key Apple technicians, like people who's, you know, it's their day job in the Apple campus. They couldn't turn it on either because it hadn't been turned on at the time. It, oh, no. There was the ecosystem that surrounds turning on an iPhone one doesn't exist anymore. It's impossible to turn one on now. So we bought one on eBay that someone had turned on at the time and it left in a drawer for $100 and we filmed it. And so we have a video of someone using, you know, essentially an untouched um, iPhone next to the object that we can't turn on. Um, so like, and that's, that's 10 years, you know, and I suspect this will accelerate. We also 
wanted to put the Google Glass in um, and we had to pretend we were using the Google Glass because again, the, the APIs, the Glass users, Google's turned them all off. And there's no, like if you think of the, um, the ecosystem for a connected technology, you know, like your smart fridge in a few years from now won't work because the thing the smart fridge uses to turn on, like there'll be nothing at the end of that pipe. And so, um, you know, thinking of, you know, like that, that, that piece about solar flares, about the connectivity, it's not the objects themselves that are at threat, it's their reliance on the availability of services that are at threat. And so this is a new problem. Like we've got pretty good at archiving and uh, simulating old sort of games and old artworks that are kind of computer-based. But there's other examples, like we have a piece in our collection which is a, basically runs in a web browser, but because it was made at a time, it's very, it very rhythmic and it's like a po it's, it's poetry essentially, it's internet poetry from the early 90s. You run in a modern web browser and it runs unspeakably and illegibly fast. <laughs> because the computers have come 10, 15 years and the browsers have come 10, 15 years and nothing appears where it should. It just like jitters past and disappears. So um, emulation is gonna work for some things, but for, for the sorts of things where the IP isn't obvious and or isn't available, like a friend of mine works for, for Flickr and worked for them for a while and he started sucking down whole chunks of Flickr because he reckons Yahoo's just gonna turn it off. At some point, it's, they're just going to turn it off and there will be no flicker. It's not a million miles off from, I mean, we've got a whole, and this is where I'm going to do a disservice to our curators. We've got a whole big bunch of uh, televisions in our collection, you know, loads of them from the 20th right. century. And obviously when the analog signal got turned off uh, a few years ago, you know, you turn on those televisions now and they're, you know, they don't receive any signal. So mm. it's not, there are precedents for, mm. you know, the, the, the sort of architecture of which these are just one part of a system mm. no longer existing. Um, so I think it's not completely unprecedented, but I think as the gentleman up there is alluding to, the time period is just so, so fast. You know, sometimes something there might be a phenomenon that's quite important that will happen for such an incredibly brief period. It's very, very hard for a, a cultural institution to respond to that. There will be individuals out there, though, who are hmm. a bit like the hoarders in the past, you know, who are doing these things. So it's hmm. maybe about being a bit more connected into our uh, communities. Yeah, that's a... Um, we're going to have to leave it there, but there is obviously so much to discuss around this topic. Um, we will uh, be screening, lo and behold, for um, the next fortnight here at Acme. So if you know anyone that would be interested, please do let them know. And um, I would advise you, if you haven't already seen Alex Gibney's film Zero Days, do try and seek it out. It's an incredibly interesting film and um, uh, yeah, very deep dive into a specific topic. But for now, would you please um, thank my two panellists here today? You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.